good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Today, January 6th, is the traditional day of Epiphany. We celebrated it last Sunday because of how it fit within the seasonal calendar. But on this day, traditionally, in this season, Epiphany season, which is the end of the Christmas season, we're celebrating the revelation of Christ to the world. He came as a babe to the world, and then with the Magi, we see the expression of the uh, revelation, the revealing, the proclamation of the Savior to the world. It's also represented by the baptism of Jesus, in which we see not just an infant, but we see a man through which we experience our salvation. Today we're going to look at a scripture from the Old Testament that has references, prophetic illusions, uh, to this very coming of our Savior. And it's in one of those passages of the Old Testament, one of those books of the Old Testament, that for many people, it's not even in their Bible. And that's what we're going to look at today on Deep in Scripture. This is a special Deep in Scripture program. It's essentially our third anniversary, beginning of our fourth year. And for this program, I've invited back a good friend who's been on many of the Deep in Scripture programs in the past, and that's Jim Anderson, who is uh, one of the assistant directors here at the Coming Home Network International. Uh, his job here at the Coming Home Network is to work primarily with clergy who are on the journey, and he's going to join us in a moment, and he'll talk about that work, uh, partially as a part of this program. But uh, I want to remind you that we'd love to have your comments, especially if you've been listening to this program off and on over the last couple of years. We'd love to hear from you. Our phone number is 800-664-5110. You can also call us at the regular Coming Home Network International phone number 740-450-1175, or you can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. This program is associated with a website, deepinscripture.com, and if you go there, you can link to watch us live, and this is one of the few times that actually I have a guest with me in the studio, so you can, you can see Jim and I interacting here as we look at the Scripture. As I mentioned, he's chosen as his verse that he never saw, one of the verses that was a particular Scripture text that he was not familiar with when he was a Protestant, and actually it was one of those verses that may have opened his eyes to the, the church on his journey. It was a verse, as I mentioned, that was in a book that had never been in his Bible. It wasn't in my Bible when I grew up as a Protestant. It comes from the Book of Wisdom. Jim will talk a little bit more about that book and its history and, and uh, maybe uh, what we know about its authorship and theme in a moment. But he chose a section of this book from chapter 2. And as I read this passage, I'm going to read verses 12 through 22. I want you to listen for the illusions that are in it to our Lord Jesus, particularly how he described himself and how we understand him as the Son of God. And so I'll read, this is Wisdom, chapter 2, verse 22 through, through uh, verse 12 through 22, and then we took a break and when we come back, Jim will join us. 
Let us lie in wait for the righteous man because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's son, he will help us and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture, that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Thus they reasoned, but they were led astray, for their wickedness blinded them, and they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hope for the wages of holiness, nor discern the prize for blameless souls. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on EWTN Live. St. John Marie Vianney was a model priest and an inspiration to all who encountered him. Tune in when Father Mitch talks with Father Frederick Miller about the Curie of Ars and the Year for Priests. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. Before I bring Jim on to the uh, program, let me remind you of the contact information if you'd like to give us a call. Again, especially if you've been listening to the program over the last couple of years, you can call us at 800-664-5110-740-450-1175, or you can write us an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com. Well, Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Marcus. It's been glad a while. To, glad to be back. You... Uh, you know, when I think about when we started, it's funny how this program evolved because we we, we began the program with the idea of having guests every week, and mm-hmm. then you were filling in from time to time, and then it got easier for you and I just to do the program for almost an entire year. I started filling in permanently. Before we went through a good part of the first 
section of Matthew, and then we did Ephesians all the mm-hmm. way through. And for those of you listening, you can go to the website, deepinscripture.com, and get archives of the old program. I'm wondering, Jim, as you look back during that time, I think you probably had emails from folk who listened to the program, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I don't want us to be patting ourselves on the back. When <laughs> you look back from the emails you've got from people, I'm wondering what you've what you heard from them, uh, what they considered most helpful about deep in scripture over the last couple of years. I remember one of the things was uh, when we were studying um, the Beatitudes in Matthew and many people were uh, very impressed and wanted to know more of how the early church fathers saw the Beatitudes, especially the concept of the Beatitudes building upon themselves right. one after another. Uh, because I myself, before we did that study, just kind of looked at the Beatitudes as this random listing of um, blessed are those and they, and the kingdom of God will be theirs and so on and so forth. But uh, it gave it greater meaning and depth. And that's w- the one thing that first comes to mind of people responding to it. I've been uh, talking about that very thing when I've been out giving mm-hmm. speeches. And everywhere I go, when I share with them the idea that the Beatitudes are a staircase to conversion, uh, they're, they're saying, why haven't we heard this? And it's an interesting segue, which we didn't plan, into our <laughs> present verse that mm-hmm. we're looking at, Jim, because um, this verse, if you were listening as I read that, and, and if, you, if you don't have your Bible in front of you, those of you are listening, or you happen to have a Bible that doesn't have the book of wisdom in it, <laughs> you can go to the website and it's printed in fr- front of you. The allusions to, to Jesus are, are very clear, but they were much more clear in the minds of the early church fathers than they have been recently. And Jim, maybe before we get that, though, um, just in general, talk a little bit about this verse and why you chose this as a verse you never saw. Well, I chose this as a verse I never saw because I remember the few time, first few times that I heard it um, read at church. Uh, it's it's uh, read in the lectionary, and uh, you don't hear it very often. It's read on the uh, 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time every three years um, <laughs> on year B, uh, usually in September, and then it's read also on the Friday of the fourth week of Lent, so that you have to go to a daily Mass to hear it then. But it struck me when I first heard it, it's like, why haven't I heard this before? Because one of the things I remember when I was a Protestant in college, I was very much into studying the, the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. And when I was a Protestant, no one ever talked about this one. And this one was such yeah. a smack in the face. Why didn't anyone ever tell me about this? Which is one of those... I guess the throwing out the baby with the bathwater mm-hmm. because the, the Protestant reformers that, which is you can talk a bit in a moment mm-hmm. about about these books in between if you want mm-hmm. to call them that, um, that out, out of the Reformation came this decision mm-hmm. to leave the Deuterocanonical books out of 
Protestant mm-hmm. uh, scripture. Uh, and one of the reasons that they did that was because there were scriptures in some of these intertestamental books that were very Catholic. In fact, the, one of the verses that that we use to uh, mostly um, uh, argue for intercession with the saints mm-hmm. uh, is in Maccabees, mm-hmm. Second Maccabees. So there was a, a, a reason to avoid some of these books that weren't in the, quote, Hebrew canon. Ulterior motives, let's say. Right. But as you said, when they're throwing these scriptures out mm-hmm. of uh, the canon, they're also casting aside this particular section, which was such a strong uh, argument for Christ. And maybe take a moment, again, for our audience to talk about this group of books that's in the Catholic mm-hmm. Bible, but isn't in the Protestant. Isn't in Protestant Bibles, say, from the 17 or 1800s up. Even the Reformers, though they belittled uh, these books and said they were not canon, they were not be- to be used uh, for uh, doctrine, they did leave them in their Bibles. You said uh, in between. Well, they weren't originally in between. Uh, in uh, Catholic Bibles to this day, they're not in between. They're uh, scattered throughout this Old Testament the way they were in the early church. Uh, in fact, I was looking at early documents, uh, manuscripts, and in the earliest manuscripts of the entire Bibles of uh, the ancient world that have survived, wisdom is one of the books that's in every one of them. Um, but uh, there were uh, seven books in the Old Testament uh, that the Reformers, beginning with Martin Luther, and basing his argument on arguments of St. Jerome in the 4th and 5th century uh, that uh, Martin Luther uh, rejected as uh, being scripture. And um, one of the arguments sometimes they use is, well, they weren't originally written in Hebrew. Well, five of these books were originally written in Hebrew. Only Wisdom and Second Maccabees were originally written in Greek, so that argument is out. Um, These books were not definitively rejected by the ancient Jews until the beginning of the second century after the fall of Jerusalem. In fact, about 30 or 40 years after the fall of Jerusalem, when some Jewish rabbis in the city of Jamnia, some people say it was the Council of Jamnia, that's not a correct translation, it's kind of like the School of Jamnia, uh, wrote uh, a document rejecting these specific books, but at the same time, they rejected the Gospels. So if we use those rabbis as a reason for rejecting these books, well, those same rabbis rejected the Gospels. So what are we going to do? In fact, it's something I've wondered, um, and I'm kind of wondering it's out loud, Jim, and I'm not, something we're not prepared for, but it almost seems to me that the, this decision that you're talking about that mm-hmm. happened in the sex, second century, uh, which was by the, the Jewish rabbis trying to decide which would be in their mm-hmm. canon, and then later at the end of the fourth century, which is the meeting of the Catholic bishops that decided yes. what's in our present canon, the New Testament canon. I'm wondering if, if you went back to the time of Christ and before, 
there weren't too many decisions about what would be in or not in. It was pretty much collecting all the books of the Hebrew history that were all mm-hmm. a part of it. It was it was in flux at the time, and uh, it basically for the Jews of that time it was very similar as it was for the Christians before the end of the fourth century, because it was the New Testament canon tended to be in flux, and. Um, some people will say that there were two canons. There was the Palestinian canon, and then there was the Alexandrian canon, that is Alexandria in Egypt. It wasn't that black and white, because uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found um, um, near the Dead Sea in 1948 and into the 1950s, men, almost all of these, quote, disputed books were found. They were being read by Jews in Palestine, although the Jews at the time would not have called it Palestine. Well, let's talk specifically about this book of wisdom. Mm-hmm. What do we know about it, and, and what's its general theme? Well, one thing you need to keep um, straight about it, uh, there is some confusion because uh, what we call the book of Sirach uh, sometimes is confused with it um, because it's, it is sometimes called the wisdom of Sirach. And this is often called the wisdom of Solomon, although no one, even in the early days, believed it was written by Solomon. It is a book of wise sayings in the tradition of Solomon. And uh, by its interior uh, evidence, uh, it was very likely written in Alexandria, Egypt. One reason for it is it uh, very blatantly makes fun of and derides the specifically Egyptian pagan gods. So, um, and it was probably written sometime, there's two possible dates, between 221 and 204 BC and 145 and 117 BC, because the author uh, gives a description of the moral degradation and recent persecution done by the Ptolemaic kings, and it's only during those two periods of times that the the kings of Egypt persecuted the Jews in Alexandria. So it's one of those two times, but we don't know for certain. We also don't really know who the author is. He doesn't identify himself, but that's not unusual. Right. We don't know for certain who wrote the book of Hebrews either, but right. we don't question its uh, can- well, canonicity. Even, even on the authorship of the Gospels, we trust the church's right. tradition on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mm-hmm. that's, that's based on, on the earliest days of the church, which again, I would say that if those who reject the church end up with very little ground on how to, to understand mm-hmm. the authorship of, of most of the New Testament books. Um, in this passage, in Wisdom 2, 12 through 22 then, in verse 21, which is the summary of this, it, it's, he's, it's after a, a quote, a long quote, mm-hmm. And the author says, thus they reasoned, but they were led astray. So the background, the the verses 12 through 20, are the words of these people called they that are talking about this person Mm -hmm. who is the image Mm -hmm. of who we know as Jesus. Who are they? They are uh, those who are blinded by their own wickedness in the text itself. It doesn't specifically say who they are. Now, if we extrapolate and look at the Gospels, they are uh, the chief priests 
the scribes and the elders who mocked Jesus. Um, and in fact, in the early church, many of the fathers saw this as a prophecy. And uh, Wisdom 2, 12 through 22 is quoted as a prophecy of especially Matthew 27, 41 through 43. Why don't you give some examples, if you would, Jim, of those early church, if you have them there. Yes, uh, I do. Um, I happened to change the page when you were talking. It, this is referred to in the epistle of Barnabas, which it could be the first century, late or the early second century. St. Hippolytus, who uh, wrote in the late second, early third century, Cyprian of Carthage, who uh, was Bishop of Carthage in the mid-third century, Hilary of Poitiers, who uh, was uh, a bishop in what is now France in the fourth century and was a great um, champion of orthodoxy. In fact, he's referred to as the, the Athanasius of the West for his defense of the Trinity. Saint Jerome, who questioned himself whether these books were canon simply because he studied Hebrew under a rabbi and was influenced by the rabbis. But Jerome himself in his commentary on Isaiah and the suffering servant references this as another prophecy in connection to the suffering servant prophecies in Isaiah. And then also Pope St. Gregory the Great in his commentary on Job references this. So this isn't something out of the blue. Many of the fathers knew of it and re referenced it. So they saw in this passage this prophetic, mm -hmm. um, again, type, anti-type, looking forward to the Messiah. And so here we're talking 200 years, 150 years to 200 years before Christ. The the people who are talking in this passage, verse 12 through 20, are interpreted as later those who would be mm -hmm. the enemies of our Lord mm -hmm. Jesus or would not understand him, uh, would be blind to who he is. Um, but then we see in those verses as they're uh, talking about him in their own language, we see this prophetic description. So, for example, Jim, point out, draw the audience attention beginning with verse 12 if you would what are some verses in there that are are pretty clear allusions some to jesus some clear allusions to jesus if you think back uh at the career of jesus and just look at what uh, the these um these detractors of the righteous man are saying they're upset that he's, I like this, he's inconvenient to us. And he's, <laughs> in other words, 12, he's, a, right? he's a nuisance, verse 12, because he opposes our actions and reproaches us for sins against the law. What did Christ do? I, I, criticizing the Pharisees for breaking their own law that they prided themselves uh, for... Uh, for being a strict follower of, and he accuses us of sins against our training. They were trained in the law, and yet they were finding their ways around the well, law. I was thinking of a, uh, that incident where 
they uh, confront Jesus about divorce. Mm-hmm. And the issue at that point is that there were uh, rabbis who had alternate opinions about the meaning of divorce, and essentially that was two different schools, right. two different trainings, mm-hmm. and they were trying to uh, press Jesus into de- determining which of their training which of their background, which of the schools was accurate. Yeah, usually it's the schools of Gamaliel and Hillel. Yes, and so he ends up pointing that neither of them, uh, neither of their trainings were accurate, and he, mm-hmm. he pushed them back beyond before their training, which again, as you said, fits perfectly into this passage. Yes. And verse 13, he professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of God. The Lord. Now, there's a double meaning in this in the Greek because the word child that's translated here by the Revised Standard could also be translated as servant. In Greek, it could be both. And in this, you have a connection to Isaiah, to the suffering servant of Christ. So the writer here is hearkening back to Isaiah in that. And um, well, I'm wondering, is it the same verse, the same Greek word that's in the Philippians 2 passage? Uh, the verse, I can look it up real quick, is... Um, in other words, is he, did, Pida. He, did, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant or mm-hmm. slave. I don't yes. know whether there, again, there's the allusion mm-hmm. to the same passage. Because yes. one thing I want to remind the audience, too, just, Jim, the, mm-hmm. the background we're doing... When you read uh, the earliest church fathers, mm-hmm. and we have we've released Dr. Kenneth Howell's book on Ignatius right. and uh, um, in Polycarp, throughout their writings are quotes from the Old Testament, not yet what we call the New Testament. Yet. Right. The Old Testament was their scriptures, so when they're reading wisdom as their scripture, they would have seen verses like yours right. as they then remembered the words of Christ and it's what he meant. And also, since also, they were reading it in the Septuagint and the similarity in the Greek words that were used in the Septuagint and the New Testament and also this, this of course, was originally written in Greek, but then the Septuagint translation of Isaiah, the wording would dovetail with this and then they would look forward uh, to the New Testament and they would go, this all fits together. But unfortunately, we looking at it through sometimes a translation of a translation, it all breaks down. Yeah, layers of it. Let me read verse 14 and 15, Jim, then you Mm -hmm. talk about that. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. His ways are strange and his manners are unlike uh, ours. What first came to mind when I read that is uh, Jesus being uh, reprimanded by the Pharisees because his uh, disciples are going through the wheat fields and pl- picking, pl- plucking ears yeah. of wheat and rolling them and eating the seeds on the Sabbath, which to, yeah. to their interpretation was work. And he says, yeah. he points out, he, but his ways are strange because we would never dare to do such well, a He thing. dined with prostitutes and sinners, sinners and yes. tax collectors mm-hmm. uh, where they would never consider doing that. Uh, verse 16, we are considered by him as something base, and he avoids our ways as unclean. 
He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Oh, this is a loaded passage here. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Pharisees, this is one of the groups that's being referred to, would be referred to here, would be aghast that Jesus would consider what they did as wrong as base and unclean because they were the ones that were the pure ones. And then also the next line, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, I mean, would be upset because he calls the last end of the righteous happy because the Sadducees believed that when you're dead, you're dead. Whereas uh, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the righteous. And then finally, the clincher for all groups, he dares to boast that God is his father. Now, quite often we say in the New Testament that the Old Testament, uh, or quite often Protestants will say, the Old Testament never refers to uh, God being anyone's personal father. Well, here's an example that they overlook because it's a verse they never saw. Right. <laughs> and in this case, again, it's from the perspective of those that that don't like the fact that right. he would call him father. And this draws us to all those readings in John chapter 6 where mm -hmm. they're persecuting Jesus because he had the audacity to refer to him as father. And it was essentially that illusion through the words of Christ that led to the cross. Mm -hmm. And so we see that prophetically here. Verse 17, let us see if his words are true and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's son, he will help us and yep. will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. He will help. Uh, my translation is he will help him. Uh, it's interesting. I Oh, no, that's right. I just misread. Sorry about oh, that. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> you had me convinced. My translation. That, okay. Um, this is an example. And in the New Testament, if you read it closely, this was the clincher that they wanted to kill him because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And here, uh, there, there's a parallel uh, to uh, this in Matthew 27, because uh, if you remember the Pharisees, uh, and well, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, at the foot of the cross, if you are the Son of God, yeah. call on him, because you said you know, that he is your Father, he will deliver you. And um, and it's echoed here. Yeah. Even in the words of Satan, mm -hmm. in the oh, temptation, yes. you know, if you're, if you are, oh, or you say you are, if you're God's son, mm -hmm. then uh, all these angels then will come and rescue you and throw yourself down and, and all that taunting. So there we have even Satan, this being echoed in the, the temptation of Satan, uh, will deliver him from the hands of his adversaries. Verse 19, let us test him with insult and torture that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial for of his forbearance. Again, this is a reference not only to the Gospels, but again to the suffering servant of Isaiah. Uh, insult and torture and the gentle suffering servant and making trial of the forbearance. Uh, remember, um, Jesus said uh, to Pilate uh, that if he willed, he could call, I don't know, I don't remember how many legions of angels come to right. come to his defense, but he forbore. Is that a word? He had forbearance against doing that. 
All right, let's take a break, Jim, and we'll come back in a moment and pick up on the rest of this reading. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grote. I am joined today by Jim Anderson, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on Life on the Rock. How can we spend time in the great outdoors and grow closer to God? Find out when avid hunter and fisherman Father Joseph Klassen joins Doug and Father Mark to talk about hunting for God. That's on the next Life on the Rock, only on EWTN. Life on the Rock is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi. I'm with Jim Anderson today. This is uh, essentially our third anniversary program as we begin our fourth year. And we're looking at a book uh, of a verse that you, Jim felt he never saw, and I didn't either, because this book of wisdom wasn't in our the Protestant canon of our scriptures. But this particular section is a powerful prophetic description of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God, Son of the Father, being persecuted by those that did not like him or offended by him. We see these illusions in the lives of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And sadly, we may see it even in ourselves, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Jim, let's pick up where, if we would, where we left off. Uh, Verse 20, we see the writer of wisdom, again, writing from within the hearts of those that are offended by this Son of God, uh, writes, Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Keep in mind, what in the ancient world was a shameful death? And that was most definitely crucifixion. It was torture, it was public humiliation, especially for a Jew, because uh, the Old Testament law said, accursed be anyone who dies upon a tree or is hung upon a tree. And they interpreted that as crucifixion, that anyone who died by crucifixion they saw as being accursed by God. And so they're saying he calls himself the Son of God, so let's condemn him to a shameful death. And then in irony, they're saying, for according to what he says, he will be protected. And uh, they see that as, as sarcasm, as denunciation of Christ, as a contradiction and of what he's doing, but basically they're playing 
because of their blindness and wickedness. They're, they're playing right into God's hands. Then the writer of Wisdom backs out of the quote. The quotes mm-hmm. that we've been um, reading so far are from the thoughts or words of those that are offended by this Son of God. Now the writer says, Thus they reasoned, but they were led astray, for the wickedness blinded them, and they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hope for the wages of holiness, nor discern the prize for blameless souls. And this is basically the core of the gospel, that the the prize of blameless souls, those who have been made blameless by the blood of Christ, who, uh, who saved us through that shameful death that was brought about by the blindness of wicked people, how God, as Saint uh, Blessed Teresa of Calcutta says, makes right straight with crooked lines. And here is a very good example of a very crooked line being brought straight by God's wisdom and power. Yeah, verse 21 is is interesting to reflect uh, even in our day and age, of course. Uh, Thus they reasoned but they were led astray, for their wickedness blinded them. Uh, you know, there are lots of things about our Christian faith that we accept by faith. It's not unreasonable, but we didn't receive that information by reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trinitarian God, uh, the divinity of Jesus Christ, full God, full man, uh, the idea of Jesus' truly present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist, following his words, his clear wording in John chapter 6 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, we didn't get there by reason. We accepted that by faith. And we can see in this verse that people who, through their wickedness, in other words, through their bad choices, their, their unwillingness to follow fully their conscience, uh, they maybe end up in bitterness, pride, which then affects their reason. And as a result of that, they are led astray. From where they're coming from, this all makes sense to them. But their pride, uh, their sinfulness blinds them to the way of God, who is a way of humility and servitude and Quite often, our pride and our arrogance is diametrically opposed to such concepts. Yeah, I think particularly in America, where only because I can't speak for, (laughs) I've been to Europe many times, but I can't speak from that standpoint. But from an American standpoint, uh, from the time you and I were weaned, Jim, we have been uh, brought up on independence in the sense of freedom and independence Uh, and particularly you and I both being brought up in the 60s where there was Mm -hmm. such a rise towards against authority, any authority, um, and always blaming the authorities. Um, You know, this idea of of being open to a a church established by Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit, that would teach us aspects of our faith that, that we trust came from Jesus through the Holy Spirit, um, it, it's easier for us, uh, apart from within us, to rise up and say, wait a second, show it to me in the Bible or yeah. ex- 
explain that to me or that's not what my eyes see or my tongue feels. You know, it's my reason that wants to trump my faith. Ultimately is humility and trust. And some Protestants, and I remember when I was a Protestant, I looked at Catholics and I thought, you don't trust in Jesus, you trust in an institution. You trust in this organization. No. I. It's only because I trust in Jesus and I trust in his promises and guidance of the Holy Spirit that I would ever dare to trust in this institution. It is through this institution that he promised that he would be with until the end of the age and that he would guide. And it is only because I trust implicitly in Jesus that I dare to trust in the teachings of the church. I want to read verses 22 through 24 again, all the way through 24. And Jim, mm-hmm. just reflect a little bit about how this is the gospel. I mean, if we read these verses, I'm going to read them to you listening. If we read these verses and we understand them through the light of grace, in other words, one of the main keys of the gospel is that we're saved by grace. In other words, it's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the graces of our sacramental life, and these graces empower us to live according to how we are called to live. If you understand that as the background, now listen to these verses, these words in verses 22 through 24 on how they express the gospel. And they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hope for the wages of holiness, nor discern the prize for blameless souls. For God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. And through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. This is just an example of how we can become so blind to the love of God and and not realize that what is motivating us is the envy of the evil one, the root and cause of all of our troubles. Behind, lurking behind all of this, that doesn't uh, negate our own responsibility for our own sins, but it began back there and also at the very beginning. God called us to a higher calling because we are made in the image and likeness of the glory of his eternity. I love the way that says it. Oh, yeah. And one thing that the Reformers did, particularly Luther and, and you know, even maybe more so John Calvin, mm-hmm. they, they, they fed what was called the black myth. Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they portrayed the teaching of the Catholic Church on the issue of justification in a way that the Catholic Church never taught. And they basically implied that as Catholics, we believe we are saved through our works, that somehow we earn our way to heaven. Catholics have never taught that. The church hasn't taught it. Uh, St. Augustine uh, very clearly argued for the Catholic perspective. However, if you hear it from the perspective of Luther, then you can see why they may not have liked wisdom because the words say that they hoped for the wages of holiness discern the prize for blameless souls, the wages yes. of holiness, the prize of, for blameless souls. But we have to keep in mind, and the church has always emphasized this, 
the wages of holiness come from grace. It is all grace. We can only be holy by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ. It is all grace. The mystery of it is the mystery of the Incarnation, that God did not stop working in an incarnational way at the, at the ascension of Jesus. Through his church, which is the body of Christ, he has continued to work through us. Protestants quite often feel that they need to spiritualize everything, and there's this diametrical difference between the physical world and things that are spiritual. We worship in spirit and truth, so therefore we don't need physical sacraments and so on and so forth. That's not the way God works now. Because he works through his body, which is his church, he works through the members of his body. It is all grace, but it is through. So whatever we do, it may be our works, but it's still God doing it. Jim, let's take another break, and when we come back, if you would, let's point out where these verses in wisdom are often referenced in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, joined today by Jim Anderson, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a non-profit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm joined today by Jim Anderson. We're looking at... Uh, some verses from wisdom and uh, Jim I just just thought that just to show you that it's on the one hand it's a bit puzzling that even modern Catholic commentators don't seem to any more recognize the parallels mm -hmm. in wisdom with mm -hmm. the uh, incarnation which again I said that it kind of reminded me of that we've lost track of what some of the early fathers thought about that the Beatitudes the same mm -hmm. thing um, but there were references in some of the Bibles to this well, uh, Old this Old Testament book. Even after the Reformation, there were regularly... <laughs> Cross-references in the Bible weren't invented by Schofield <laughs> nor the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. <laughs> uh, there have always been, um, at least uh, in the last few hundred years, cross-references from the New Testament to the Old Testament. And uh, it's interesting that even though um, the Deuterocanonical books were not officially uh, recognized as a source of doctrine by the Church of England, 
after uh, the Reformation, the King James Bible, which up and uh, regularly up until at least the 1700s, uh, included the Deuterocanonical books, although they gathered them up and stuck them between the Old and New Testaments, and many modern Bibles that do have the Deuterocanonical books will do it that way also. Uh, but they continued to have cross-references. And um, by the way, in the King James Bible, our reference to Matthew 27 today is cross-referenced with wisdom to uh, again. And also, there are many other cross-references. One that I think is interesting, if you turn to Hebrews 1.3, there's a reference to Christ in Hebrews 1.3. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word and his power. Uh, When he has made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, in the King James Bible, in the early editions of it, there's a cross-reference to this, to Hebrews 7.26. And you need to put this in context, because the early church saw the examples of wisdom in the Old Testament, in all the wisdom books, Wisdom is seen as a prefiguring of Christ. Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God, St. Paul says. So after St. Paul says that, they look back at the Old Testament and uh, they see these references. And Wisdom 7.26 says, For she, that is wisdom, because in in, I believe Hebrew as well as in Greek, Wisdom is a feminine word, for she is a ref- Latin as well, I think, and Latin as well. Yeah. Yes, for she is a reflection of eternal light and a spotless mirror of the workings of God and an image of His goodness. So this is a very clear hmm. reference back and forth between the Book of Hebrews and the Book of Wisdom, and that's not the only place that Hebrews uh, references. Um, a deuterocanonical book in uh, the the great um, parade of martyrs in uh, the book of Hebrews is a cross reference to the seven great martyrs and their mother in Maccabees who refused to eat pork and violate the law at the command of Antiochus Epiphanes and this list of great heroes of the Old Testament faith is included in uh, Hebrews, although your Protestant Bible won't refer this as a cross-reference to Maccabees, but that's who the writer of Hebrews is referring to. Well, Jim, I think as we, we close up our program today, we've, we've drawn our, our audience to uh, some maybe some verses they've never seen in a mm-hmm. book that might even might not even be in their normal canon of, of the Bible that they have at home, but go out and buy one. Well, I'd like to, <laughs> uh, yes, I'd like to encourage them to, uh, to they'll consider that the common message that's in this book of wisdom and in the new Testament. And of course, in the teaching of the church, the, the reference in Hebrews 
excuse me, in uh, wisdom is uh, that we are to hope for the wages of holiness and to discern the prize for blameless souls. That's what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. We are called to know the secret purpose of God. If you look in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, all of those phrases are common. One that, that just uh, comes to mind. And this is Paul writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-believers and trying to get them to change their lives. He's writing to believers right. who've been baptized. He says, put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt with, through deceitful lusts. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new nature created after the likeness of God into righteousness and holiness. Well, those are the wages of holiness. Mm-hmm. I and mean, that's all of the second half of Ephesians is about everything that this writer of wisdom is talking about. The prize for blameless souls, eternity. And that's clearly in the teachings of Christ as well as uh, all the other writers of the New Testament. Know the secret purposes of God. I mean, the author of Ephesians says it very clear to know. Yes. And also, too, in the writer of wisdom, um, there is a clear hope for life eternal with God, for the blameless souls. In fact, later on, I believe it's in chapter 3, that quite often this is quoted in Catholic funerals, that the souls of the righteous go up before God like sparks from a fire. Um, And so wisdom, if you go to a Catholic funeral, you're going to hear the book of wisdom. Well, if you don't happen to have a Catholic Bible, (laughs) I would encourage you to get one at a local bookstore. You can get one at any bookstore, actually. Mm -hmm. Just check the the, uh, index to make sure it's the whole thing and not a truncated version. Make sure it has 73 books, not 66. (laughs) If you want to find out more what we're talking about, you can go to deepinscripture.com. You can go to ewtn.com. You can go to chnetwork.org. All of these will give you references to many of these things that we've been talking about. Jim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Marcus. It's a pleasure to be back. I want to remind you that next week on Deep in Scripture, our guest will be Travis Lawmaster. And uh, you'll want to tune into that discussion, an excellent discussion. And uh, I want to hope, uh, hope you'll join us often during this fourth season and contact us. Give us your thoughts. What are some verses you never saw that you'd like us to discuss? Maybe some difficult verses that you'd like a guest to discuss. We'd love to do that. You can let us know at, write us an email at marcus at deepinscripture.com or you can contact us at any of the information you see at our websites. I hope that this has been an encouragement to your journey to go closer to God and holiness. We'll see you again next week.